Homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. Welcome back my young friends to another session where we look at the Buddha's instructions on giving. And this is an additional session that complements where we look at the story of Anathapindika. So as we know, Anathapindika is the foremost of the Buddha's male lay disciples who was a donor, so Dayaka. And what we know about Anathapindika is that he was born Sudatta, but where he lived in the city of Savati, he was given this honorific title, Anathapindika. And it was given because Pinda means one who gives alms, and Anatta means to the helpless. So you get the name, one who gives alms to the helpless, Anathapindika. Now, what we find in the suttas is, because the Buddha lived mostly around Jetavana Monastery in Savati in the last 20 years of his life, particularly around the Vasas. This was the monastery that was donated by Anathapindika, and we're going to hear the story of that. And this was given to Buddha and the Sangha. And so when you listen to a lot of the teachings that came, particularly in the latter part of the Buddha's life, you hear it said in the teachings, Thus have I heard... On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetavana, the monastery of Anathapindika. And so that's probably how we know Anathapindika, that he donated this wonderful monastery, had much generosity. And you could say that undoubtedly, he's probably one of the most well-known lay disciples of the Buddha. So... What we can learn from him is actually quite a great deal and we'll probably revisit his story time and time again with different aspects of his life throughout this series because he had many interactions with the Buddha and he was able to develop the path and attain stream entry as a lay person with many responsibilities, many dealings but also with a strong leaning towards Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. And so it's really interesting to know how he managed to balance it all. We can first look at how Anathapindika comes to meet the Buddha for the first time. So the Buddha was staying near Rajagaha in the cool grove and Anathapindika had arrived in Rajagaha on business and he'd heard that the Buddha was staying in the region. And so his first thought was that he wanted to go and visit the Buddha but it was already late. So he decided to go the next day. Now at the time he had great difficulty going to sleep. He woke up at least three times in the night thinking that it was already daytime. So there may have been a sense of anticipation or excitement about getting to meet the Buddha. Eventually he woke up and it was just before dawn so he decided to set out for the monastery. So while he was walking, fear arose in him. He started to have doubts and uncertainty. And so it was great difficulty trying to go and meet the Buddha. And we can relate to that actually, because there are times when we want to do something particularly wholesome, particularly helpful, but we come up with a lot of challenges, whether they're internal challenges or external challenges. Sometimes they block us from doing good. So this was the same kind of situation with Anathapindika. But fortunately for him, a kind spirit, an invisible one, came to help him. 
and basically said to him, go forward, householder, go forward. Going forward is better than you than turning back. And so Anathabindika persisted through the fear, through the doubt, through the uncertainty. He, put, he proceeded towards where the Buddha was staying. And then as he walked, the mist started to uh, evaporate or, or move away. And he saw someone walking towards him. And so he stopped. And the, the person who appeared actually called him in a very, very melodious voice, Come Sudatta. And so Anathabindika was startled because he wasn't used to being called by his given name. He was used to being called Anathapindika. And so then he knew that must be the Buddha using his, his given name. And so he went up to the Buddha and he bowed and he asked the Buddha a very normal question. He asked, did the Blessed One sleep well? And the Blessed One, the Buddha didn't give the conventional answer. In, in fact, he gave him a glimpse of, of his ability. And so what said is, the answer was, always indeed he sleeps well. The Brahman who is fully quenched, who does not cling to sensual pleasures, cool at heart without acquisitions, having cut off all attachments, having removed care from the heart, the peaceful one indeed sleeps well, for he has attained peace of mind. And so there's a couple of things that we could probably say about what the Buddha's answer indicates. He potentially indicates that he knew Anathavitika did not sleep well, that Anathavitika was probably disturbed by his own uh, longing to see the Buddha. He may have also been troubled by business, we don't know. But he was not someone who had slept well the previous evening. So when the Buddha answered, there was some kind of little indication that he knew. And then the other one was that he was just reminding, if not signaling to Anathapindika that if you remove all attachments, whether it is to material things or whether it's even to the Buddha, then you will have that, that release from all acquisitions, all things that you, you think are going to help you, make you happy, liberate you, and indeed you would then sleep well. And so it's quite a powerful sort of statement that he says to Anathapindika. It's not, it's not your usual common response to a conventional greeting. So already he's showing his abilities. What we know about the first encounter with the Buddha is that the Buddha goes on to give a teaching, a gradual teaching to Anathapindika. So he gives a talk on generosity, on virtue, on heaven. And he reveals the danger, degradation and defilement in sensual pleasures and also the benefit of renunciation. And when the Buddha knew that Anathapindika's mind was ready, supple, without hindrances, it was lifted and joyful, confident, he revealed the teaching unique to the Buddhas that there is suffering, its origin, its end and the path. And it said, just as a clean and stainless cloth absorbs dye properly, so too, while he was sitting right there, Anathapindika experienced the stainless eye of the Dhamma. Anything that has a beginning has an end. So what we see here is this series that we're going through. Anathapindika went through a teaching from the Buddha that is exactly like this sequence. And as a result of that, his mind was lifted, it was cleansed. In actual fact, it's very much like the Vatupama Sutta meditation, if you've been through that that you have a clean cloth 
And now you can give the teaching of the Buddha about the Four Noble Truths. And when that happened, Anathapindika, because he was ready, because he had been able to understand and penetrate the Buddha's teaching, he entered the stream. So he became a stream enterer. So it goes on to say in this particular part of the Vinaya, it says, He had seen the truth and had reached, understood and penetrated it. He had gone beyond doubt and uncertainty, had attained to confidence and had become independent of others in the teacher's instruction. He then said to the Buddha, Wonderful, sir, wonderful, just as one might set upright what had been overturned or reveal what was hidden or show the way to one who was lost or bring a lamp into the darkness so that one with eyes might see what's there. Just so has the Buddha made the teaching clear in many ways. I go for refuge to the Buddha, to the Dhamma and to the Sangha of monks. Please accept me as a lay follower who has gone for refuge for life and please accept tomorrow's meal from me together with the Sangha of monks. And the Buddha consented by remaining silent. So the wonderful thing is that there was clarity in his mind after hearing the teachings of the Buddha that it helped to dispel any doubts and he became very confident in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So that's why he, he took refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha and then he was able to offer a meal to the Buddha. And so this is how the relationship with the Buddha started for Anathapindika in this very, very unique but very simple way. And so as we go through these gradual teachings of the Buddha that uh, he gives this particularly to lay people, know that there is much fruit that be can be gained from how we learn and also how we learn from someone like Anathapindika as well. So the next day what we know is that Anathapindika invited the Buddha for the meal and the noble Sangha and he offered many many fine foods and he personally served the meal to Buddha and the Sangha. After the meal what we know is that Anathapindika wanted to invite the Buddha and the Sangha to Savati for the rains retreat and to offer a monastery for them where they could stay. And so he went up to the Buddha after the meal and he made this request. Sir, please spend the rainy season residence at Savati together with the Sangha of the monks. And so the Buddha answered by saying, The Buddha delights in solitude, householder. And so Anathapindika knew that that was a confirmation that the Buddha would accept. And so he, he basically said, I understand, sir, I understand. And then he, he got an instruction from the Buddha again. He found it very inspiring and gladdening. And at the end, the Buddha got up and left. So Anathapindika made his way back to Savati and on the way he was looking for different lands about where he could build a monastery for Buddha and the Sangha. And eventually after scouring the place, he was actually looking for a place that wasn't too noisy, whether it's daytime or nighttime, somewhere that would meet the Buddha's requirements in being peaceful and offering solitude. And so it couldn't be too close to the city of Savati but neither could it be too far away. And eventually he found this land and it was in uh, this kind of forest that had um, a very nice little area near some hills. And he found out that the land was owned by Prince Jetha, who was the son of King Pasenadi. 
So Ananda Pindaka went to visit Prince Jetha in his palace and he found out that the forest was not for sale. And he offered what was the appropriate price for the land, which was the equivalent of 18 million gold coins. But Prince Jetha wasn't willing to sell. And so they went to an arbitrator, somebody who would help to decide. And so fortunately, the arbitrator ruled that the price for the land could be however many of those gold coins that Anathapindika had offered, that would be the land that would be given. And so basically, Anathapindika, he went away and he got truck, well, not truckloads, but cartloads at the time of gold coins. And he started laying them out on the site. So he put the gold coins down and eventually it covered most of the land except for this final section. And he was going to go away and get more gold coins. Instead, Prince Jeta, he announced that he was prepared to build on that land a big gate and a tower at his own expense and make that an offering to Buddha and the Sangha. That that would be the point at which people could enter the monastery almost like the dividing line between those that are in the world and those that practice. And so then Anathapindika, he then spent another 18 million uh, in gold coins to make the buildings, so to construct all the buildings for the monastery and to furnish them as well. So it's said that he built individual cells or kutis, he built a meeting hall, a dining hall, storerooms, walkways. You know, so you imagine this forest, it was completely a forest. He made it into a monastery. And then he also had the wells for drawing up water. He also fashioned lotus ponds so that the Sangha could bathe. And also a big surrounding wall so there was protection. And so that forest glade that that uh, Anathapindika had initially found, it was transformed into this wonderful monastery. And as a result of that, in the suttas, we hear it always referred to by two names, Jetha's Grove, so Jethavana, and Anathapindika's monastery. So at the end of all the preparations, the Buddha was invited to come with the Sangha, and they came to take up residence for the rains retreat at the new monastery. When they arrived, Anathapindika invited them for a meal and he asked the Buddha, how should I proceed with the offering of this Jetavana? And the Buddha answered, you may dedicate it to the Sangha of the four quarters, present and future. And so that is what Anathapindika did. The Buddha then expressed his appreciation and he uttered these verses. They ward off cold and heat and beasts of prey from there, and creeping things and gnats and rains in the wet season. When the dreaded hot wind arises, that is warded off, to meditate and obtain insight in a shelter and at ease, a dwelling place is praised by the awakened one as chief gift of an order. Therefore a wise man, looking to his own wheel, should have dwelling places built so that learned ones can stay therein. To these food and drink, raiment and lodgings he should give to the upright with mind purified. Then these will teach him Dhamma, dispelling every ill. He knowing that Dhamma here attains Nibbana, taintless. 
And so the alms meal for the monks was followed by a sumptuous celebration for even the lay people with gifts for everyone. This cost another 18 million in gold coins. So altogether, Anathapindika spent 54 million of gold coins, or the equivalent of that, on the new monastery and the offering of it. And that's most of the reason why Anathapindika was declared to be the foremost donor of the Buddha and of the Sangha. And we can learn a lot from that. Like when you hear that story, you you look at how much money, how much wealth Anathapindika relinquished in order to give something so wonderful to the Buddha and the Sangha that it offers, as the Buddha says, it offers protection, it offers ease. So we know that when you offer a dwelling place, it offers ease. You ward off anything that would come to harm you, whether it's animals or the elements such as the weather, the heat and the cold, the insects that come to bite, all kinds of things. And so it's very, very massive praise that the Buddha gives to Anathapindika. But what we see from Anathapindika's offering is how very dedicated he was once he took up the task. He never backed down from it. He was adamant about making this offering and he was offering the best of what he could offer. And it doesn't seem that he had any constraints. So yes, he was wealthy, but I think it's also testimony that when we offer, we offer without any blemishes in our mind, that we see it all the way through. Now, if you know building projects, they're always fraught with a lot of difficulty. Same with maintenance, anything to do with buildings. You have to deal with a lot of people helping you to construct it. You have to deal with the supply of things that help you to, to build it. The things from the bricks to the cement or to whatever kinds of things, the tools for building. And so you know it's always with great difficulty that you do a project like this. And, and so you know he persisted all the way through. And even with his offering at the end, the alms meal to the Sangha, the Buddha and the Sangha, he offered also to the lay people to come and rejoice in the event. And it was very lavish. The fact that he spent another equal amount towards the offering shows that there were no limits to how he did it. And I think even if you're not wealthy, but with what you have and what you choose to give, you give with that open-heartedness, without any blemishes in the mind. And it's something that you can never regret. And so for us, when we anamodana, uh, another Pindika's offering in our minds, and see it with so much joy. It's something that bears fruit even for us. That we want to emulate something like Anathapindika. And even if we can't, we are part of it when we rejoice in his wonderful massive offering. As we know from the suttas, Anathapindika was one of the most devoted of the lay disciples of the Buddha. And so we find a lot of teachings where the Buddha gives counsel and advice and teachings to Anathapindika. And so in this particular sutta, this is one example where the Buddha was talking about a lay person's proper practice. And at the time, uh, Anathapindika approached the Buddha and the Blessed One said to him, Householder, a noble disciple who possesses four qualities is practicing the way proper to the lay person. 
a way that brings attainment of fame and leads to heaven. What for? Here, householder and noble disciple serves the Sangha of bhikkhus with robes. He serves the Sangha of bhikkhus with alms food. He serves the Sangha of bhikkhus with lodgings. And he serves the Sangha of bhikkhus with medicines and provisions for the sick. So when you have these four qualities, you're practicing in the way proper to the layperson, a way that brings the attainment of fame and leads to heaven. And then the Buddha goes on to say, when the wise practice the way proper for the layperson, they serve the virtuous monks of upright conduct with robes, arms, food, lodgings and medicines. For them, both by day and night, merit always increases. Having done excellent deeds, they pass on to heavenly states. So Buddha's encouraging generosity, which is part of this dana kata, that punya, merit, it grows. So by giving, merit grows. So very important because it helps all of us to ascend up, upwards. So at the end of our life, having done all these generous things, these are the things that help us to ascend upwards to the heavens. So another story is there were times when the Buddha was not at Savati. He went on pilgrimage. But lay people would still come and want to make offerings and pay respects. And so Anathapindika, he heard about that and he heard that there wasn't any kind of tangible support for worship. And so he asked Venerable Ananda that he had this wish to build a shrine and that if Venerable Ananda could ask the Buddha when he returned what was possible. And so when Venerable Ananda spoke to the Buddha, the Buddha said there were three kinds of shrines that were possible. The first had to do with containing his relics. The second was to do with something that was more of a memorial. And the third was something that had to do with a representation of the Buddha. And so in the first instance, the first one was something that the Buddha had to have passed away. So the Buddha was still living, so you couldn't have anything that could have his relics. So you couldn't build something like a stupa or that sort of thing. So that the timing wasn't right. The second one was associated with a memorial. And because the Buddha was still alive, you couldn't use something that was representative of, of the Buddha, like his arms fall, for example. So instead, what was nominated, the, the most suitable was the bow tree. So as we know, the bow tree, the Bodhi tree, was the tree under which the Buddha gained full enlightenment, Nibbana. And the third one was in relation to something that was a representation of the Buddha. But at the time, there wasn't any kind of symbol or thing that was useful that would be suitable for lay people and so that was was almost like dismissed so we come to this bow tree shrine and basically it was said to be the best object to serve as the memorial to the blessed one and so they decided to get a small shoot of this tree and they asked Venerable Mahamukulana to go and actually uh, obtain that and so he did he brought us a small cutting from the original tree and that was to be planted at the gate of Jaitavana. So when that happened, many people came, including uh, Anathapindika, Visaka, and other lay people. And also King Pasenadi was there, and many other people. And at the time, out of great humility, uh, the king actually offered for Anathapindika to actually plant the root. And so it was... 
Anatapindika, who was actually the one who made that particular first kind of uh, putting down of that root. And so in that way, uh, what the story goes in the Jataka story, it says that the tree grew to its full height, the height at which the Buddha had had been sitting under it when he gained full enlightenment. So it's quite a marvelous and wondrous thing. And so we know that this is how we, we come to have this good fortune to be able to uh, make offerings to the bow tree. It was given as, as a shrine, even back in the time of the Buddha. And so this is the story behind it and how Anathapindika was part of that. One of the most important teachings that the Buddha gives to Anathapindika on giving is contained in the Balama Sutta and it's in Anguttara chapter 9 discourse number 20. And in this particular teaching the Buddha really emphasizes two things. The first thing is about the way in which one gives and the importance of that. And the second is about what is most fruitful in terms of giving. And he tells this story about the Brahmin Balama. So if we look at the first thing which is the way we give the Buddha talks about giving with care and consideration, with thoughtfulness. And the Buddha says that if you're not giving in that way, so instead of being thoughtful, you give carelessly, thoughtlessly, and you don't give with your own hand, and you give almost like the worst of what there is to give, rather than the best, and you give without consideration for the consequences then the result of that, he says, is actually quite unwholesome, that that gift manifests in your own mind where you can't even enjoy things that come to you. So if you have lots of things that uh, are good and enjoyable, tasty, what have you, you find that the mind can't enjoy those things. And when it comes to people around you, like your family, your, your partner, your children, your relatives, people that work for you, people that work with you, they don't want to listen to you. And so they don't pay attention, they don't try to understand. And so that's what the Buddha says in terms of being careless when it comes to giving. So that's not the right way to give. Instead, the Buddha says, give with care, consideration. Be very careful in how you actually give things. Give it with your own hand, being very thoughtful. Don't give the, the worst. Give the best of what you have and give consideration to the consequences so that as a result of that, your mind can enjoy when you are given things. Your family, your people that work with you or for you, they listen to you as a result of that and they try and understand, they pay attention to you. And so that's the beauty of when you give carefully. So that's the very first thing to bear in mind. That's what Buddha was counseling and advising Anathapindika. Now the second part is about what is most fruitful and this is probably one of the most eye-opening things about the Buddha's teaching because we often think you know when we give specifically to the Buddha or to the Noble Sangha that that's that's the highest of giving but what we learn from what the Buddha says is that that's not necessarily the case and many of these things the Buddha talks about he talks about them cumulatively so if you were to accumulate all these different giving from the bottom and as you go up, the highest thing at the very end is greater than 
the, the accumulation of all the different kinds of giving, the one at the end, is higher than that, bears the highest fruit. So let's go through what the Buddha says. So at the bottom we have Vilama's great offering. So this was at the time there was this Brahmin named Vilama and he gave a great offering. So he gave 84,000 gold bowls filled with silver, the equivalent silver bowls filled with gold, the equivalent bowls filled with gold coins. He gave the equivalent number of elephants with gold adornments and banners covered with gold netting, chariots upholstered with a hide of lions, tigers and leopards, cream rugs with gold adornments and banners covered with gold netting, milk cows uh, that were covered with silken reins and bronze pails, uh, maidens bedecked with jeweled earrings, couches spread with woolen covers. So you get the general idea, lots of finery, very lavish. And on top of that, he gave lots of fine cloths of linen, cotton, silk and wool, and a great large quantity of food, drinks, snacks, meals, refreshments and beverages. It seemed like an overflowing river. And so Buddha says to Anathapindika, you might think that this Brahmin Velama must have been someone else at that time. And uh, also the Buddha reveals that he himself was the Brahmin Velama at that time. And he gave that great offering. But what he said was that event, it was given to no one that was worthy of such an offering. And there was no one to purify uh, that as a donation, as an offering. And so the Buddha goes on to say, it would be more fruitful to feed one person accomplished in view than the great offering of the Lama. So essentially someone who has entered the stream. If you offer even to just one person who's entered the stream, it's more fruitful than that very lavish gift, offerings that uh, Vilama was offering. And then the Buddha goes on to say, it would be more fruitful to feed one once returner than a hundred persons accomplished in view. And then furthermore, it's more fruitful to feed one non-returner than a hundred once returners. Then more than that, it's more fruitful to feed one arahant than 100 non-returners. Non then even more than that, the Buddha says, it's more fruitful to feed one fully awakened Buddha than to feed uh, 100 perfected ones. So a Pacheka Buddha in this case. And then even more fruitful than that is to feed one Tathagata, a perfected one, a fully awakened Buddha than a hundred Pacheka Buddhas. Then even more fruitful from that is to feed the Sangha headed by the Buddha than to feed one Tathagata. And then even more fruitful from that is if one were to build a dwelling, especially for the Sangha of the four quarters, than to feed the Sangha headed by the Buddha. So, I mean, again, we see the accumulation of merit that cumulatively each one is even greater than the accumulation of all the rest. But even more so than that, you see that even beyond offering food, you offer dwellings, it's even more. Then the Buddha goes on, it would be fruitful to go for refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha with a confident mind than to build a dwelling for the Sangha of the Four Quarters. So then you see that when you actually take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, that is even higher in terms of bearing fruit. 
And then when it comes to what is more fruitful than that, it's to undertake the training rules. So when you take the five precepts, that's even more fruitful than uh, taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha and all the rest. And then even more fruitful from that is to develop a mind of loving kindness, even for the time it takes to pull a cow's udder. So when you're milking a cow and even just one pull of the other, if you were to have metta, you know, a properly developed metta, that moment of metta, that is higher than even the training rules, higher than taking refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha and all the rest of it. And then the last one is that if you develop a mind uh, that has the perception of anicca, the unlastingness, that the Buddha's teaching on this, that if you really see it, then just for the time of a finger snap, then this is the greatest that would bear the most fruit. And so when it comes to giving, you see that in terms of merit, you see where things land, that the cultivation of taking refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, in terms of uh, taking the precepts, like developing virtue, in terms of then the practice of metta, of seeing the perception of unlastingness, it becomes more. Now we'll learn more about that later, but we know how to develop metta from metta school, so we, we can use that. But it's just really interesting to know the distinction. So what you can do as your homework is really to investigate how that can be true. Because when you first hear it, sometimes you think, how can that be true? Even the meditation of metta, how can that be more than offering to Buddha and the Sangha? And the mind kind of gets really interested, but also a little stunned, a little shocked that meditation is more. But it's really true. This is what the Buddha says to Anathapindika. So he encourages Anathapindika and lay people to practice in this way, to know what bears more fruit. And that even when we give, it's to know there's only so much that one can give that is helpful. The rest needs to be part of developing the path to train ourselves, to take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and to actually learn how to meditate. And so this is something that we need to take on board. But it's a really lovely teaching because this was only given to Anathapindika. The last story we'll go through is this story about how Anathapindika lost and regained his wealth. And the story goes that he lost his wealth in two ways. The first way was that there was flash floods and his gold was washed out to sea. And it was quite a great deal of gold. And then the second way was that he lent money to his business friends. So as you, as you do when you're wealthy, sometimes people come and ask whether they can borrow money. So he lent quite a great deal of money in order to help his friends to do their own businesses and various things. Now they couldn't repay him and he was hesitant to push them. And so that's how he lost his wealth. He ended up living on less. But even living on less, he decided to still offer alms food to the Sangha every day. So instead of offering lavish foods, he offered more basic foods. But he offered it with a very, very open heart and very happy to do so. So at the time, the story goes that there was a spirit living in his mansion. And this spirit did not like 
when the Buddha and the Noble Sangha came for alms food. So it tried to drive away the Buddha and the Sangha, and it did so by appearing to the helpers who lived and worked in Anandapindika's mansion, and also appeared to the children of Anandapindika, also tried to dissuade, but it didn't work. Finally, it appeared to Anathapindika and basically said to him, you've lost all your money, so it's better for you if you don't give to the Sangha, that if you don't give to Buddha, don't give to the Sangha, that's better for you. But the answer that Anathapindika gave was something that was so remarkable, basically said to the spirit, there are only three treasures in the world. The first treasure is the Buddha, the second treasure is the Dhamma, and the third is the Sangha. And I will do everything to protect these three treasures. So please go away. I'm not interested in what you say. Um, this household will always protect the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So he's very, very strong in his conviction towards that. And so the spirit was cast away, basically, had nowhere else to live. So in that realm, you get judged before you can find another place to live. And so it was judged that he needed to go and see Saka, king of the Devas. So when he went to see Saka, king of the Devas, he was told that what he had done towards Buddha and the Sangha was wrong. And what he said to Anathapindika was also wrong. And so Saka, as punishment or penance or a way to recover from the, the deeds that he had done that were unwholesome, the spirit was asked to go and retrieve the treasure from the bottom of the ocean. So Anathapindika has lost gold. And he was also asked to get the debtors, the people that owed money to Anathapindika, to repay their debts to Anathapindika. And so the story says that the, the spirit was able to fulfill those tasks with great difficulty, was able to retrieve the treasure from the bottom of the ocean, the gold coins, was also able to, in the dreams of these lay people, encourage them to return the money, to repay the money to Anathapindika. So essentially, Anathapindika's wealth was restored. So the spirit then went to see the Buddha and asked for forgiveness for his wrong behavior, for his malevolent, angry behavior. And he received forgiveness from the Buddha. And the Buddha explained the Dhamma to this spirit, and so he became a disciple of the Buddha. Essentially what the Buddha taught him was that a person who strives to be perfect in giving, to achieve perfection in giving, can't be kept from it, from anything in the world, neither by spirits, gods, evil things, or the threat of death. So that's an encouragement that when you do your best to perfect giving, that you perfect this generosity, then you can't be kept from your wealth. Nobody can really take it away from you in many ways, that somehow you're protected. Now, it doesn't mean you don't lose your wealth. You may still lose your wealth, but there's some sort of thing that happens, some goodness that happens. And so that's, that's really quite a wonderful thing to know. Now, in the Dhammapada verse, the Buddha utters these two verses. Even an evil person may still find happiness so long as his evil deed does not bear fruit. But when his evil deed does bear fruit, he will meet with evil consequences. So that's essentially like the spirit. He had to bear with being cast out from his home because of his wrongdoing. 
But then when he made uh, methods or when he sought the the punishment and when he fulfilled the duties that Saka King of the Devas had asked of him, then that fruit essentially was mitigated, the wrongdoing was mitigated and so he didn't bear the full brunt of the evil consequences. It could have been a lot worse because Anantha Pindaka was a very good person and Buddha and the noble, noble Arahants, the, the Sangha, were also very good people so you don't want to do wrong by them. And the second verse is, even a good person may still meet with suffering so long as his good deed does not bear fruit. But when it does bear fruit, he will enjoy the benefits of his good deed. So Anathapindika, clearly he had some misfortune, he had some kamma that he had to bear with, which was the loss of wealth. And his example shows us that when we meet with misfortune, our circumstances change in, in a not, good, not so good direction. You bear with, just like Anathapindika, that he still was adamant about his practice towards Buddha Dhamma Sangha and he, he just carried on. I'm sure he would have carried on working and doing business even though he was now poor. And in terms of his good deeds, all those good deeds came to fruition because he, his wealth was restored. So he never lost conviction towards Buddha Dhamma Sangha. He just continued. And I think there's a very, very strong message a very strong teaching in this example of Anathapindika that really at the end of the day you could see that the wealth didn't really make that much difference to him. That what gave him joy was giving, what gave him energy, mind energy, not to get really depressed having lost his wealth, was really the refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha and walking the Noble Eightfold Path. He was a stream entrer, so there is a difference in him. But I think also it's good to look at it and examine it, think about it from that perspective, that there's much to learn from his example. There's much we, we haven't spoken about, but in your own time, the homework would be to really think about Anathapindika's story in terms of giving, that his example provides us with many opportunities to learn more to learn more about what blocks us, to learn more about how we can improve and develop, and how much the Buddha always encourages us to do more and to progress more, to chip away at our practice in many ways. And so this story of Anathapindika, particularly in respect of giving, offers us a lot. And so he's a very superior person, very similar to Visaka, the laywoman, also chief donor in terms of female lay disciples. And in this case, Anathapindika, chief donor in terms of male lay disciples. So if we emulate and try and understand how they, they do what they do, even if we do that in a small way, it's very helpful to the path. The mind brightens. There's lots of rapture that comes from doing these good deeds and we can use that in meditation as well. So we can end the session here. It's really interesting because the story of Visaka, the story of Anathapindika, they're very useful even when we do the merit book meditation. When you Anamodana, people like Anathapindika, people like Visaka, for their the way that they perfect 
the things that they did in order to perfect giving, it really elevates the mind, it really lifts the mind, particularly if you, you find their story helpful, if you find um, inspiration from their story, then even when you do the merit book meditation, it's very helpful. You can look at one's own good deeds, but you can also look at the good deeds from people at the time of the Buddha, just as much as you can look at people around you who are also doing good deeds. So let's share the merit with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem. Wishing you all well. Teruan Saranai.